This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers, and I'm here with Light Ailee, Roxana Espos, and Palace Shaw, gathered in the spirit and the memory of Malik Alim for our seminar on freedom. That was the artist and freedom fighter Tom Morello with his signature anthem, Let Freedom Ring. Tommy's generosity is an inspiration. He shows up wherever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in search of peace and justice. We broadcast from the so-called Chicagoland area of Illinois, unceded lands stewarded by many peoples and lineages for millennia, including the Potawatomi, the Ojibwa, and the Odawa, and a dozen more indigenous nations. As justice seekers and freedom fighters, organizers and activists, we acknowledge them and thank them. We remember and honor a history of stolen land and resources, a history of genocide, and we pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily at the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be, but is not yet. So let's keep asking, what is freedom? How do we get free? What are the freedom dreams that encourage us and drive us forward? These good questions animate our every conversation and our ongoing reflection. Our first traditional feature is the quiet contemplation of a poem, our moment of Zen. And today we consider two by Langston Hughes. First, democracy, and then a short excerpt from a poetic tribute to Vladimir Lenin. Democracy. Democracy will not come today, this year, nor ever, through compromise and fear. I have as much right as the other fellow has to stand on my two feet and own the land. I tire so of hearing people say, let things take their course. Tomorrow is another day. I do not need my freedom when I'm dead. I cannot live on tomorrow's bread. Freedom is a strong seed planted in a great need. I live here too. I want freedom just as you. That's the great Langston Hughes with Democracy. And here's a little excerpt from a poetic tribute that Langston Hughes did to Vladimir Lenin. Lenin walks around the world. Black, brown, and white receive him. Language is no barrier. The strangest tongues believe him. Lenin walks around the world. The sun sets like a scar. Between the darkness and the dawn, there rises a red star. Our second regular feature is a free write, impromptu, unedited, spur of the moment. So pause the podcast for just a moment and write wildly. No need for edits or revisions. In response to this prompt, tell the story of a time when you gave someone a gift. What was it? Why you give it and what happened, that is, what was the response or what were the consequences? Okay, start writing and we'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. 
Welcome back. We're now going on to our segment, Artists, Activists, Authors, and Academics After Hours. And today we have a spirited conversation with Danny Katch, who is the author of several books, including Socialism Seriously. Welcome back. Welcome back. I'm delighted to be here with Danny Katch, a writer from Queens, New York, a contributor to Truthout, Jacobin, The Independent, and an author with the great publishing house, Haymarket Press. Whoop, whoop. Yep, there you go. And we're going to be um, talking a bit about your new book, Socialism Seriously. It's actually an old book, but this is a follow-up, something like a second edition. Uh, you published a book called Socialism dot, 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 seriously, in 2014. And at the time, it seemed like a good joke. And I loved that book. I The earlier book was great. I passed it around feverishly. Um, and the new book is even more exciting to me. And maybe it's the fraught times we're living through, or maybe it's what you say right on the cover, now with 50% more socialism. Maybe <laughs> that's what got to me. I'm not sure. But maybe you could say a word about why this edition, why now, and what's different from the book that came out, what, seven years ago? Yeah. Okay. So first of all, thanks for having me. I'm really, I'm excited to be having this conversation with you. You totally were a fan of the original book and that meant a lot to me and also you know gave me a real sense of validation um and you know that i'm for real so just <laughs> and i don't think i've told you that before so i did i didn't want to say that um yeah and and right so that original book i i wrote it really in 2013 2014 i think it came out in 2015 so when i'm writing it the idea of like saying socialism seriously almost like an old like catskill comic or something was this is before Bernie. This is before this is when DSA was sort of DSA from the 1980s. Just you know, like like a, a socialist organization among many others. And 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 um so the idea of asserting, you know, it was a self-deprecating joke about being a socialist is no, 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 really, guys, I'm a socialist. The context now is completely different. Um, so right, it's both the new version has to just be updated because I, I noticed people were continuing to buy. The book which i was grateful for but i was like oh my god like they're all these people many of whom were probably inspired by aoc or ilhan omar or standing rock occupation or 2020 black lives matter rebellion or you know i, I could just keep going on and on and on and none of that is going to be in in this book that they're getting about socialism so that, that was one reason why i felt like i had to I didn't have to, but I, I I wanted to write a new version. I'm not really a big fan of, I mean, when I say I'm not a big fan, I'm probably not capable of it, of writing a new book that really probably should just be an updated version mm -hmm. of, of an older book. You know, I, so so it may not be great marketing, but it felt more true to be like, no, this is the same idea, but but it's it's a very, it's a newer version. But then I also think I, I've had a lot of, all those things that I just mentioned, they're not just updates, they've there is 50% more socialism. There's been there's been 100% more socialism that's happened in the last five years than in my entire, you know, active life as a socialist before that. And it's it's forced me to change and and rethink a lot of things. You know, it, it's I don't think the politics, I think ultimately, and I, I had to go through writing this new version to be like, what have my, which ideas have changed and which have stayed true. And, you know, so I was very dismissive of electoral strategies as a way of building socialism i just don't think you could have gone through the last few years and 
you know, with your eyes open and maintain that, even if all the reasons I was skeptical have also been borne out at the same time, you know, but but clearly as a means of building a movement of spreading the word about socialism. And, and I also don't think we've exhausted what the possibilities could be electoralists. That, that's one example. Uh, I think another prominent one is the centrality of indigenous uh, liberation, indigenous politics, the centrality of settler colonialism, colonialism more generally to capitalism. You know, I look back at the original version, it's, it's very absent. I think I think my book reflected a blind spot that much of the non-native left had. And and I don't I by no means think I'm I'm some expert now. And, and I'm really looking forward to critical feedback from people on that stuff. But it's, you know, after Standing Rock, after seeing um, things that have been happening before 2014, but me finally realizing that Native political leaders have been, are at the forefront of the fight for the planet and have been for a long time. And so there's also some real different politics in the book, too. Um, and then finally, the experience we've all had of COVID and, and the acceleration of the impacts of climate change. The book tries to maintain the cheerful spirit of the original while also really not trying to do the best that I can to stare the really scary stuff uh to sit with it and not and not run away from it um so yeah I don't think you run away but I do think that one of the things all of your writing that's noteworthy about all of your writing is that you bring humor into it and I don't think you bring it in in a superficial way and it's something that I so admire about you and about your writing. And I'd love for you to say a word about it. I always feel for myself, I'm not funny. And I, you know, and 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 yet I think that humor and art do a lot more work in movement building than didactics. I think I think partly the humor is more generous, but I find your use of humor both both kind of strikingly um precise and at the same time generous rather than pushing people away, bringing them in by being able to laugh at yourself, at, at us, uh, you know, even the notion of, you know, now with 50% more social, I mean, it's, it's, right. it, it's a way of being um, honest to the complexity of things. And I think didactics often misses that. It becomes one-sided. So I'd love for you to tell me how you think about humor, how you came to it, and why it's important in, in movement building. So um, again, that's super generous and i i appreciate that before i forget i gotta give prop just a little 50 percent more socialism thing that's on the cover which um that was actually jim plank at haymarket we were really? talking about this book and he came up with that and it's great and then um i love the design uh on the on the cover with it so i mean the only grim thing is that I feel like that joke has gotten more of a positive response than anything yet so far in the book. And it's not my joke. It's Jim Plank. Um, so it's a great whatever. Guy. Shout out to Jim. Good. <laughs> He's great. He's great. Um, so, um, but yeah, humor, it, what should I say? I think I had been an activist. So I, I've always just, I've, I've always been someone who overly relies on humor to deal with all of life's, um, problems and uncomfortable situations. And it has been nice to find like a useful outlet for that. I, I think that it was partly, um, you know, I didn't really start writing till I was in my mid thirties. I didn't start. And, and I never really, I was always someone who was an organizer and a socialist and, and always sort of make making jokes as many people in the movement do, which I think is sort of, you wouldn't know it from the popular perception of, of, 
the left as these joyless scolds or whatever, but we're actually, and I think you in particular, a pretty joyful bunch of pretty, you know, and with some obvious exceptions. <laughs> the, but yeah, I didn't really know how to necessarily integrate um, humor in. When I started writing, I knew that was something that was important to me because I, I honestly, one of the things that gives me a sense of hope is how stupid our enemies are and and but then you can't and and really i don't even mean personally i mean the irrationality of capitalism as a system but then the and, and sort of sticking a print a, a pin in the inflated egos of the the people that hold it up but the self-deprecation has to come because as much as you make fun of them boy do they have a lot more power than we do like boy are there some really dim people who have who hold immense power over our daily lives i mean i think anybody who's ever had a job that changes the instant you get a new supervisor and and the way that that the most shallow supervisor can just make your life hell knows the sort of humiliation that comes with you know being a worker the humiliation that comes from being oppressed and you need so you need i think some self-deprecation to 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 go along with it but but i i, I do appreciate what you're saying about the humor not just being superficial i, I i've always felt like some of the best comedy non-political political whatever it's 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 about it's it's when people are able to kind of tilt their head at one angle and look at everything in a slightly different way and suddenly all the weirdness that we all take for granted comes out that's really subversive and so if you know the, the times that you're able to find a humorous angle that isn't just a joke but is like you know the uh the, this military that we spend so much money on, this must be the greatest military in, in the world that hasn't won a war since 1945. You know, not that we're cheering on wars, but there is something very funny about that when you're when you're amidst the horrors of U.S. militarism. You know, like that that's actually a joke that's built into the analysis of of what U.S. imperialism is. And what it means to sort of be an empire. So, um, so you know, the things like that. Now, that 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 doesn't. You have to then figure out a way to. What do you do with that, both politically and humor-wise? But you know, I, I like to try to start from some uh, an actual concept that I find both horrifying and funny at the same time. Hmm. But you know, I, I think what you say about it being subversive. I think of Trevor Noah. I think of the old Stephen Colbert. And I think of the Marx Brothers. I mean, they weren't doing overtly political humor, but man, they were subverting the culture. It's so oh my God. Yeah. Well, you know? So I think that's really useful. The other thing besides the humor, uh, Danny, that I think is super important in your writing is that you never shy away from it being grounded in values. You don't run from it. You, you say, yes, this is ethics. This is ethics 101. And I think too often in the movement, we we lose track of that or we become we 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 surrender too easily um and we need to keep our what are the values of socialism what is it that we're fighting for and i think you have a really um powerful way of keeping that in the center of the conversation and again i wonder how much that's um that's consciously how you approach this work or or how you think about it not only I I don't necessarily consciously when you say that it resonates with me and it, and it makes me very happy to hear that but it's not something I've been nearly as conscious of as the humor I I do think that um you know as as 
I think when I was younger, I probably I might have even bristled at that because I have I think that the reason why 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 which is probably true of many people, we're we're wary of I, I think whether it's family values or you know, a lot a lot, so much talk of morality as it like you say has been so successfully um uh, co-opted isn't quite the right word, but you know, we 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 grow up thinking of ourselves as rebels against what the sort of conventional morality is, and I think most of us know that we we are we we do want a different kind of morality, but it, it almost feels scary to uh, to 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 put that out. But but I think I think now maybe maybe it's a reaction with as you know politics is going to get ever more cynical the more we're openly an oligarchic society right i mean they like you, you the, those two things just sort of go together donald trump is obviously one example of that but you know i think much of the machinations of the democratic party to squash its its burgeoning left wing or you know there's such a cynical it's all just about winning aspect to what, what people usually think of as politics which is you know the 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 elect the electoral race you know the horse race kind of stuff and I think that then has a ripple effect on the way we all talk to each other. Clearly, the fact that most of our conversations take place now in spaces that are owned by Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, and and that were that are that are gamed to um, manipulate our emotions and to trigger our outrage at each other and at people we think are on the other side. You know, none of this stuff is really good for fostering the an ethic. Uh, that that we want to live in so maybe that does make it more maybe maybe that makes it a little more obvious that we we need to embrace embrace that but and again to me again i always find it inseparable from being self self-deprecating um it, it's, it's a humor but it's also uh, it's you know if you if you're in touch with your own fallibility i think that goes along with then trying to see the best intentions of people you know when 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 they're generally on your side um and yeah i mean i i think i think the having that kind of uh, building a politics that that's confident um but the not mistaking that for it's okay that we're we can be wrong we can be vulnerable too um yeah yeah i mean uh, for me the the rhythm of both moral action and the rhythm of being a good activist has to do with opening your eyes paying attention uh, being astonished at both the beauty and the love and the ecstasy in every direction, but also the unnecessary suffering and then acting, but then doubting. And in many ways in my own life, I mean, I think the the most egregious mistakes were made in forgetting to doubt, um, mm. you know, that, that you were so sure that you were right. And the one thing, I don't have a lot of advice for activists today, but the one thing is to know that anytime you feel self-righteous, you're wrong. You may be right on the issue, but your self-righteousness is certainly flawed and, and undoubtedly wrong. And, and it, I, I want to come back to the values question, but I, but I want to point out, since you've raised it, that you start the book with a by painting a picture of an imagined scene in the year 2040, and it's called something like uh, A Cold Day in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe you speak a little bit about that. You paint a picture and talk about flawed. We're a mess. We're very human, you know? And I think that it right away you kind of take us into the idea that I'm not talking about perfect human beings or a perfect system. I'm talking about ordinary us, but in a different kind of structural 
reality. Say a word about how you opened the book, and then you end with another portrait of of uh, a hot day. Yeah, I mean, both. So th that first chapter that I wrote, this was I wrote one chapter for the original book, and then it probably became the most popular chapter. And I and I and I had so much. Not only did I have fun writing it, it was actually the first thing I wrote, and it really sort of freed my mind to write the rest of the book. But I I had it in my head that. I want to imagine, yeah, a day under socialism, and it's it's a bad day. It's a grouchy day. You know, the person in it, it's the day that they have to get up early to work their shift at work. And maybe, yeah, sure, we only work three days a week now because we've gotten rid of all the pointless jobs like public relations and mall security. But, you know, damn it, there's still you still got to work. You still got to be the one who goes in early sometimes. And it's freaking cold. Uh, and there's, you know, climate change is, is wreaking havoc. And, you know, but but yeah, and this, and this is a day that it's all of a sudden it's cold. Um, and I and that and when I when I when I had that idea, it felt so right to me because that is me. I am going to be the person whining as we're winning the revolution about, you know, Oh, this isn't this isn't how I pictured it, you know. Whatever. I mean, that that is, uh, so so that and it was so freeing to to then be. And I think maybe it's the way my mind works. I'm only going to let myself imagine a taste of what how much more liberated we can be if ever if there's never a question that everybody is going to have a place to live and that we're going to have arguments about you know, how hard you're working or not, but the consequences are never going to be you, you go without food, shelter, medicine, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then, but I was freed to imagine that if it was, if I could picture someone having a crappy day, you know, whereas I think I'm too cynical living in this system to just let myself imagine a good day with all that liberation. It sort of was just allowed me to be like, okay, like, like now, now, now we'll let you, um, dream a little bit and so yeah and then and it it that first chapter it goes through it, it then takes part of what makes it a terrible day is that it's the day you have to visit your reactionary uncle who and who your mother insists that you have to visit because he's family but you've grown up with entirely different notions of family and you get to explore that kind of stuff you know the other chapter i write uh, actually, before I didn't even know I was doing it, but it became a bit of a me uh, meditation on grief when you think about under socialism, all the people, you know, will have lost and how for many people, um, you know, think about how disproportionately people of color, indigenous people, how many more people they'll have lost who won't get to see a different society. And so you have and and not and which is and I try also to make clear it's not that every uh, inequality and injustice is magically going to disappear and people are struggling to figure out how to ongoing fight. But, um, so yeah. And I didn't realize that that was really helping me, you know, write about everything that's happened with COVID. Let's go back a minute to the question of values because yes, you know, I want to, I think that we, I think that we surrender too easily often on the big value questions. We allow them to be co-opted. And I think one of the ways we do that is that, we assume that our values are have to be pragmatic and practical and solvable in the instantaneous way. And we often, when you ask people about values, we often go immediately to the individual and not the social. But I think that what that's one of the things, again, that I think is a strength of the book is this idea that we don't need to surrender saying that 
We are for socialism. That's what we're fighting for. And that socialism is about mutuality and accounting for differences, not smoothing over differences. It's not that we're all going to be wearing, uh, you know, coveralls with our social security numbers on them. That's not the vision we have. So keeping that vision out front, I feel like is is terribly important. And maybe more so today, because clearly, as you point out early in the book, we're somehow making noise and being a force. We're somehow, uh, because they're responding to us. I don't know if you saw the vote in the House of Representatives uh, the other day condemning socialism. Did you see that? Yeah, and I, you know, I, I don't even know why we're doing this conversation because we lost. I mean, they made that vote. That's, you know, let's just pack it in. Exactly. But yes, I did see that. But the number of Democrats who went for that, you know, that goading was just astonishing. And that, again, is what you said earlier about kind of protecting itself against its left flank. I mean, that's um, that's part of where they are. Um, but I think again and again, I'm thinking about now you 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 have some terrific things to say about oppression versus exploitation. Love you to talk a little bit about that. But just to say on this values thing for a minute, I think when Roe v. Wade, when the the decision came down doing away with Roe v. Wade, many of us felt like the value that we hold, our fundamental value is a woman's right to control her own body, a woman's right to uh, to bodily autonomy. There's no other area where you'd say, well, you have to give somebody a kidney or you have to have this certain, no, you have that right. And then suddenly with the liberals and the Democratic Party, we're in a discussion of whether we should carve out an exception for rape and incest. And I want to go screaming from the room. I don't want any exceptions. I want to say a woman's right to bodily integrity is fundamental. That's a value. And we shouldn't be backing up on that and surrendering in these ways. We should force it to the to the limit, I think. I mean, that, that's what I mean about your the value laden thing. Yeah, that's, you know, and I'm, I'm, you're making me, this, this isn't a conversation that I'm in a lot and I really want to, um, I'm, so I'm thinking as you're, as you're talking about it, cause I, I, I think that's really right. And, and I think it also, you know, it comes up so much around abolition, defunding the police and these critiques that like, you know, look at this, it's not polling well, which is a criticism made, you know, three days after most of the country first even heard of the, the notion of defunding the pol police or whatever. But I, I think it's very true around reproductive uh, freedom as well, Where, which is, of course, it's not to say that you don't counterpose values with trying to figure, you know, words that I hate, like messaging or whatever, but things that are real, you know, things that are about practical politics. But, you know, maybe this would be one thing if we were having this conversation in 1983 and the tide of most people, including young people was really moving to the right. And, you know, I, I could see a case, I wouldn't agree with it, but I could see a case for pragmatic Democrats saying like, we, we have to just, you know, do hold on to whatever we can and drop this talk about value. You know, the, the values of most people are moving in this very individualized pro-business direction. And by the way, I'm sure that is it wasn't even necessarily true in 1983. But but it was right. You would know better than I, that. Maybe that's the image. Maybe that was me buying the propaganda as a kid then. But I I do feel like today I see it with my kids, but not just my kids. There is such a revulsion against capitalism, among young people, amongst older people, against everybody who's experienced everything probably since the financial crisis 12 years ago, and then accelerating 
with COVID and seeing the way that our society was just faced with a choice between protecting human lives and just saying, no, we all have to accept much larger numbers of death because for the sake of the economy. And I'm not saying that that made everybody a socialist, but it's it's exacerbated this sense of deep ethical crisis that I think people walk around in. And when we don't address that, you know, and and that doesn't you you can talk about it and you could be like Marianne Williamson and you you know you can, there's many different ways of talking about it this which can be quite hard headed or you know whatever your own sensibility and style is but if we're not talking about things in terms of of a fundamental vision of you know decency and 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 how we want to live then the same people pushing mass death fill in their own version of morality tales with made up stories of groomers and pedophiles and secret societies, these people who are invading my neighborhood because the library does drag story hours and we have to organize defenses. And, and you know, and, and so, and but this is also about, they know that people want a sense of like fighting for values and they're going to make up vicious fascist kind of stories to give people a role to play in, a, in an ethical fight that actually upholds all the evil forces. And, and it actually should be so much easier for us to, to enroll people in a fight for things that are good and decent, because we're actually talking about everybody having healthcare, sharing vaccines around the world, people uh, getting a second chance and being decarcerated. You know what I mean? I mean, this is, yeah. This is this is exactly why, though, that I get, the, I get uh, upset with people either on the left or even, you know, liberal progressives giving up too fast because i think that we, we the crisis you describe is as real as dirt and it's really real and yet the alternatives become a kind of fascism or or a kind of socialism and you know you you think of of uh, where do we go from here barbarism or socialism or king's book where do we go from here chaos or community if we're not holding up and saying out loud community and socialism and mutuality and all the things that we are capable of saying, we've got to do that or we lose to a fascist set of values that also critique capitalism. I mean, they critique the the world as it is today, but they don't offer the alternative we offer. And I think that we have to be very, very upfront about it. That's, again, why I, I, I want your book to be a bestseller. I want it to be on the New York Times bestseller list because it's a, in many ways, I would call it almost in many ways a primer. It's not a primer in the sense of dumbing anything down, but it's an introduction that anyone can get. And young people can get it and young people are eager for it. So, um, but I think that's our that's our dilemma that we have to be we have to be strong in how we present the alternative or the other alternative, which is presents itself as very strong, um, wins the day. Well, yeah, and, and I I would take the description of it as being a a, a primer, a primer. I, I never know how to pronounce it, but I would take that with pride. It absolutely is an introduction. I, I think of myself as being a popularizer of ideas that very few of which I had much of a role in coming up with. I'm, I'm an educator, you know, and and that's and and I you know I like I like I like the I like the the things that I have come up with in the book, but that's not what this is. This isn't a book. This isn't Danny Catch's theories on socialism. This is meant to be introducing, you know, trying to reach an audience of people who are furiously Googling what is socialism, who was Rosa Luxemburg, what is abolition, well, you know, any, any number of 
of things and, and, and trying to um, be a gateway for, you know, be everything that the state of Florida, you know, wouldn't want, right? I, I, wa I want to be a gateway for all sorts of radical ideas and absolutely, and even, I don't think I'd dumb down ideas, but I would, I am not afraid of erring in that direction to be, to actually create accessible books. I, I do think we need more of that on the left. And this is not me. I'm not, there are plenty of people on the left who do this work. Plenty of people who certainly do education work, but in the world of books, there, there's some great stuff out there, but I, I really feel like there could be more. One thing I do think that's a challenge about it, and some certainly I challenge I face writing this book is, you know, we're also in a moment where there are so many exciting, but, but still very open-ended questions for the left, right? I mean, I, I think, um, it's a, at one point in the book, I talk about this being a moment where there's so many, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a historic global, uh, revival of indigenous politics, uh, and leadership in a lot of movements. There is the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, charting new ground, not just in the U.S., but in many countries around the world. Feminism is making all these exciting turns. The, you know, socialist ideas of people like Ralph Miliband and Nicholas Palancis have, have made this huge comeback with democratic socialists. There's, all, there's revivals of all sorts of other radical, uh, you know, socialist tendencies. You know, many of these movements are infused with anarchist, uh, horizontalist ideas that, that, and, and they're all jumbled together. And, and I think many of us who maybe had been in different silos within that are finding ourselves jumbled together. All of this is a good thing, but it all means there's a ton of questions out there. Oh, and by the way, we're hurtling towards irreversible, you know, towards climate change being so irreversible that, that it's unclear whether any of our dreams are possible with without, you know, a lot of things changing very soon. And we're going to, we're operating in a world where we're, you know, who knows what's going to happen with future COVID variants and all this kind of stuff, all these things posing new questions. I think sometimes it, people can look at it as an either or, like when we know what we're pushing for next, that's when we sort of reach out to a new audience and put out introductory work. When we don't, we have to kind of go behind closed doors and try to hash this stuff, ha hash out these questions. And and I'm trying to write a book at a, at a, in a moment when I feel like is of great uncertainty for the left, which is not the same thing as defeat or, you know, but uh, I mean, certainly in this country, we're in the middle of a pretty nasty backlash. But in general, in in larger terms, this isn't a low point for the left. This is, this is uh, an exciting time, but a very uncertain time. All that's a way of saying, I think it can be hard to try to write things that are very introductory while also being very honest about how many open questions you are. How do you recruit people to a movement? <laughs> And say, so here's the thing. Um, we don't totally know. Um, we're hoping you can help us figure this out. But and that is the tone that I try to write the book in. Um, and so, but I, I think we need more of that. I do too. And I think that that goes along with the spirit of the opening of your book, which is we are flawed human beings. Nobody's looking for sainthood, nobody's looking to be perfect. We're looking to be human, fully human, and allowing all of us to be fully human. And I think your book strikes that tone perfectly. But in the spirit of, of being a primer, I want to just raise a couple of things that the haters say about you and us and um, and see what, what you, I mean, you do a great job in the beginning of this idea that socialism is dead. And you have a funny way of talking about it was dead and then Bernie came along and then it died again because he lost to Hillary and then it was alive again. That's very funny. Um, 
But but what about the idea that, that socialism is good in theory, but it could never work in practice, ever? Yeah, I think, I mean, the the main response I think we'd say to that is why then do the forces of capitalism and imperialism work so hard to overthrow it wherever it, it starts? Well, why do they crush socialist parties? Why do they overthrow experiments in socialist government? Why not just let it collapse, you know? Um, and, you know, I mean, I mean, because because when social when when governments that are that are whether you want to say calling themselves socialists or trying to move towards socialists when they do hit crisis it's incredible propaganda you know Venezuela has has hit you know people can debate the scale of the crisis I, I from a little bit I know I think it's pretty massive it's a country that that tried under Chavez to move in a socialist direction imperialism gave it no choice but to use its oil revenues uh as a major tool for doing that which means that you are completely susceptible to the global capitalist market in commodity prices and oil the, that's that that model combined with ton, a hostile many hostile powerful countries trying to trying to hurt it but you know it, it it's led to um it hasn't been working out right there's there's a huge exodus of people from Venezuela, I don't look at that as a as as a proof that socialism can't work. But my point is, for propagandists for capitalism, when a country like Venezuela has a crisis, it is a huge boon for pro capitalist propaganda. If if socialism would just fail, why not just let that happen? You know what mm. I mean? Like which they never they never do, including in Venezuela, where there was many coup attempts against. Uh, Hugo Chavez. But so that would be the first thing is that in fact, when what what they mean by socialism has failed is we've killed it <laughs> in in many places around the world. I think the other way to look at it though, because there's a there's a maybe a more a harder critique to take then, but that's in the same spirit, is well, socialism is a good idea, but it'll never work because you can't overthrow. We'll never, we're never gonna, they're too powerful. And when you try, it's going to lead to uh, people will suffer. You know what I mean? People suffered under the dictatorship that ended up happening in the Soviet Union under under Stalin when when uh, the you know the gains of the Russian Revolution stopped. People suffered under you know you name your 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 revolution. And I think with that critique, which is um, a real one, that anybody. Uh, who is a socialist has to not just resolve once, but resolve many times in your life and and revisit. And, you know, like that's a real thing. Um, I think we have to say a couple of things. One, that is true for all attempts at change. You know, the revolutions that swept across the Middle East and starting in 2011, they weren't socialists. They were, they were, they were trying to end dictatorships and, mm -hmm with the slightly partial exception of Tunisia, all of them have ended up in even more calamitous situations than the calamitous dictatorships that existed there. I think few people would say people shouldn't try to end dictatorships. You know, I, I, think, I think it's more understood that when people try to do that and, and they lose, that doesn't mean it wasn't worth trying to do. I think with socialism, uh, one of the things I think I write, at some point in the book I write, I, I, I probably give about 30 different definitions of socialism uh, in the book. And, and one of them is that 
it's a phase of history that we haven't yet reached, you know, and there's been many attempts, some of which are called communists and some of which are called socialists. And that's a whole other debate I get into, but I, I compare it early on in the book as well to, there were hundreds of years where the transatlantic slave trade and plantation slavery was, you know, the basis or one of the basis, there's a debate, I guess, of the uh, emerging, you know, capitalist economy. And we're talking from, you know, 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, 1700s. That is a long period of time. That is, that is longer than the period of time since Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto. And for much of that, and there were many rebellions against that system of slavery, some of which, most of which were crushed before they even started, many of which were crushed at horrib horribly when they happened, a few of which succeeded in sort of creating uh, islands of, of, of freedom for escape enslaved people, but did not end the system of slavery. And sometimes even those islands of escaped enslaved people, then the only way they could survive was then to work for the slave plantations. And, and you know, and, and, and in that time, if someone had said ending slavery is a good idea in theory, but it's never going to happen in practice. And in fact, when you try to make it happen in practice, it results in massive reprisals that cause even worse situations than what there were before. A lot of people probably, a lot of people did agree with that, I imagine, at the time. Uh, history would not agree with that judgment. And what we would call those mass reprisals and the situation getting worse, counter-revolution, uh, which, which we don't think justifies uh, the argument that, you sh that, that revolution uh, shouldn't happen. But, you know, if that brings to mind the word backlash which you mentioned earlier, I, I can't abide that word. And, and when I see historians who say, you know, the civil rights movement was going along great, and then black power kind of undermined it, and there was a great backlash, or the anti-war movement was really doing a good job, and then along came the crazies, and there was a backlash. And I don't buy it. I mean, to me, it, first of all, the language of counter-revolution is a better language because it it says most clearly. But the other thing is, that take, for example, white supremacy is always a base for white supremacy. It's there. It, it it gets awakened and finds itself living in the West Wing at different times. But it's not that it wasn't there and that somehow we awakened it by our extreme demand that we abolish the police or something. I mean, that's nuts to me. So it's interesting. I'm thinking about it because I use the word backlash all the time, but I completely agree with you that when it is used. And, and so I want to think about if there's something inherent in that word that that maybe because I, I completely agree with your point that and and that when people talk about backlash as being something provoked by the left. And this is, I think, a isn't classic. That, isn't that in the word? I mean, maybe. No, I'm, I'm thinking I'm about, worried about it. I'm worried that in the word is implied that there's a normalcy, you know, and having lived through this around the anti-war movement and being accused, not always. In, I mean, we've made so many fucking mistakes that it's. Mm -hmm. I won't even catalog them. It take too long, but but the idea that somehow we caused you know the continuation of the war is just nonsense. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. Oh, I, I right. Well, and again, I'm I'm so I'm in 100 agreement on that, and I think it's so inbuilt into the logic of liberalism because if you know liberalism, many liberals, not some people are called liberal who are just not. But you know, if you take liberal to mean not in the classic 19th century economy sense, but I think the more common sense notion people have today of someone who 
genuinely wants to see there be changes that make society more humane, but thinks that capitalism in general is the system we need to have and does and so doesn't want to see those changes go too far in a way that risks the larger stability. You know, inbuilt in that mentality, which many good people have that view of the world, but inbuilt in that is this idea that they don't understand how change works because all change is destabilizing for the system because capitalism depends on massive hopelessness and the idea that nothing can change. And so when we do see changes start to happen, it opens up people's appetite for more change. And this is the, yes, there's always going to be organized lefties like ourselves who are want that to happen and are pushing it, but it's also going to raise, you raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour and people want it to be $20 an hour. And then they want it to be $25 an hour. Well, wait a second. Well, that's not what we, uh, our corporate backers are saying they can't, they can't hack that. And then, and then comes an organized, an, a, a premeditated backlash, not a spot or what, again, I'm, I'm reaching for a word, but a, a, a counteroffensive, let's put it a counteroffensive that is gaining momentum from the people who are alarmed by the gains, you know what I mean, that, that this is being made. And then liberals will turn around right away and blame the left and say, you did this. It's because you didn't calibrate your demands perfectly. It's because your actions, it's because that building got burned down. It's because of anything, any range of things. And of course, on the left, we have to have our own discussions and debates about what worked and what not. But but absolutely, um I think I think that's there's this and that's the sort of tag team that the right and liberals do against the left in those moments. The reason why I'm I'm not I'm I'm still trying to think about the word backlash and is that I I agree white supremacy is always there, but I also think in moments like 2020 with the Black Lives Matter uprising, surely in the late 60s and early 70s and you, you I mean I want I want your thoughts to this there's also when our side is actually um moving things and calling things into question and having an impact I I do think it also causes a real hysteria among a right wing and I'm not necessarily talking about the people in holding positions of power but you know one of the things that I I also write about is when you know when when I'm feeling low <laughs> about our prospects, I like to sometimes take comfort in right wing fears about socialism. Um, and I think sometimes on our side, and I'm going to connect this to what I'm saying. I think sometimes on our side, we we dismiss every time Republicans cry out that Joe Biden is a socialist or whatever as the sort of opportunist, cynical stuff. And of, of course, it is. This is political strategies. But there is also, I do think sometimes that conservatives are more attuned to how fragile capitalism is than liberals are. I mean, liberals think capitalism is like the natural order of things. I think conservatives are more in tune to like, no, this is an oppressive system that we are working hard to maintain uh, every day and, and inculcate both with oppression, but even more so with a, a sense of hopelessness among people that things can't change. And we're the ones doing the ideological work here to keep the system going. And I do think that they may be, when, when there are moments of rebellion and uprising, um, I think they're more attuned to how destabilizing those moments can be. And I think liberals are more likely to be like, oh my God, really? Like you're getting out of hand. So my point is being around the backlash thing. I wonder if there is a there's something I think to the fact that it's not just a completely premeditated 
counter, you know, counter revolutions have are driven by fear, not just calculation, you know, I guess. So, um, yeah, but, but I, I really got to think, I use that word all the time and I really got to think about it. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, the other thing that's speaking of contradiction and living within contradictions, you know, during the Obama, uh, election, the first one, you know, that he was called a socialist so many times and he denied it. So well, you, you would know, according to memory, I, th- I think you must have some memories of that. And he wrote the book. I, you know, I was his main advisor, but he was called socialist. And what I kept imagining the contradiction of that is some kid in Arkansas Googling socialism and seeing that it means from each according to his ability to each according to their, their needs. Holy shit, that sounds positively Christian. You know, <laughs> so, so I'm thinking, wow, I mean, they're they're throwing this word around, but they're also popularizing the word at the same time in a weird way. So, I, I you know, I, I think that we have to be I, th- I think we have to stand up strong for who we are and what we believe, and we have to explain ourselves. So, you know, we're having a we went through an election very recently, and cr- crime and the fear of crime was on the national agenda. Well, here in Chicago, we're having a mayoral election, and the progressives, except for one, are outdoing themselves, saying they'll put more cops on the street. No, I'll put more cops on the street, and it's such a losing strategy, and it doesn't take leadership. Seriously, the one candidate who we're backing, and you may know Brandon Johnson, but Brandon's a, was an official with the Chicago Teachers Union, working class guy, fantastic guy. But I was at a meeting with Brandon and one of the young activists said, what's your position on defunding the police? And he smiled at her and he said, you don't expect me to step on that third rail, do you? But if you look at Brandon's ads, it's all about creating, spending money on the kinds of things that would actually bring safety, not police, because police are not the equivalent of safety. But I think that's a tricky thing. But those are the kind of tricky things we have to enter into. And I think we have to stand up, again, for our values and our principles and not get caught in the trap of trimming things down so that we avoid the backlash or whatever. You know, I mean, 100%. And I I think that... um... It's such an interesting moment around the defund movement because on the one hand, there's this tremendous counteroffensive. I'm not going to say the B word around uh, efforts to defund. I mean, again, you know, and it's New York as well. We're not having a mayoral election, but Eric Adams is blasting the progressive caucus of the city council because basically the city, the, the, I can't, I'm butchering the name. It's some sort of progressive caucus. They're trying to hold their own members accountable who are voting for police funding increases and trying to make uh pushing to defund um, some sort of precondition for being in the caucus. Now, it's something I haven't been paying enough attention to. I may be getting a few details wrong. Eric Adams is then using this as a chance to rail against the woke left and blah, 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 blah. It's interesting, though, because let's not take for granted now that we're in a place where we have a whole bunch of elected officials or in Chicago's case, someone with a credible chance of winning the mayoral election who are um, either talking about defund or at least, you know, maybe Brandon Johnson, but like, but like, but but are are involved with that movement. And and now we're facing what are the and so and really helping to spread that idea and spread that idea among the right as a cause of demonization, but also among a lot of ordinary people who, let's not forget, before 2020, had never really heard of this concept. You know what I mean? Um, and so, and at the same time, we're also running into 
the really tricky situation that the de- defunding the police, meaning literally even reducing police budgets, has become so anathema to the way cities and and towns are run under capitalism. You know what I mean? That in a way that 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 it's become so militarized, and not just militarized in terms of their gear, but militarized in terms of the ideology of U.S. imperialism and dominance over dark-skinned enemies in our midst being the fundamental job of government <laughs> way above education public health you know keep keeping people actually safe that you know i think we're fi- i think very few people now think oh if you get someone elected who's for defund that they're gonna just be able to defund the police i think we know there will be concerted efforts by Police departments, police unions, all the major media in that city, real estate, dele- you know, developers, etc. You know, it, it would create a crisis. It seems to me, and maybe I'm being hyperbolic, but a mayor getting elected on a platform of defunding the police and then actually trying to do it would be a micro version of Abraham Lincoln being elected and being met with you know, immediate secession in the South. I mean, that is how built in um, policing has been. The defund movement has exposed that. It's it, it's brought us to this new place of organizing. And we, I think no one exactly knows how to overcome this because this is, you know, and my only point in saying all this is just, um, this is an advance from where we were a few years ago, an incredible advance. And yet it, every advance brings you to the next challenge that uh, many people know more about this than me. In my mind, I don't quite know where to go next with this. You know what I mean? Um, and so, and that, that's part of the nature of, of of where we're at, I think. Right. I mean, but, but I think in a place like Chicago, we're actually having a fairly sophisticated debate. I mean, thinking nationally, you wouldn't have thought 10 years ago or five years ago, that things like reparations would have appeared in the New York Times. What the hell? I mean, so in that sense, we're having a conversation, we're sh- we're shifting the frame of a lot of conversations. But in Chicago, the, the fact that people are saying defund or they're saying, um, you know, um, uh, policing looks different in the North side than it looks on the West side. And having really showing the ways that that's true. And then people are able to say, and this has made it into the mainstream conversation, if we took the money that we had just paid in judgments and payouts and lawsuits for police misconduct in the last two years, we could fully fund the schools, mental health clinics, and the pensions. So what the hell are we doing? If we just capped overtime for police, if we just capped overtime in Chicago. But one of the things I like in terms of reframing, and I think Brandon does this, as he talks about ethical budgeting, once again, back to values, lead with values and stand on values. So what is ethical budgeting? You mean you're going to cut, close schools, cut mental health, cut, you know, all these programs that mean something to people, have city transit go into the sewer in order to pay payouts for police murders. I mean, it's insane. So I think that's a really good reframing where we keep values in the forefront. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I, I do think in, increasingly you're seeing you're seeing people on our side talk about how education has been defunded, how, you know, and 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 I do think that's really important. And and in general, I think the the 
understanding, you know, in the socialist tradition, there's many debates about the role of the state. And I, and I think one thing that, that the conversations about defund bring out is that the state, it's more complicated than this, but there's, there's clearly two different roles that the state has. There's the famous armed bodies of men. I think Lenin talked about military, border patrol, police, prisons, many other um, agencies that are, we are aiming to defund as much as possible. None of which, all of which are carried out in the name of safety. All of which in fact are about uh, class and racial gender, national oppression. And there's all these other aspects of the state, most of which have had to be fought for and won by social movements, you know, public education, public health, unemployment, pensions, scientific research, university funding, arts funding, um, that, and, and it's so, it's so tied in with ethics and morals, right? It's so tied into what are your values about what makes for a good society? I, I, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's completely true. I had a great debate at the University of Southern Georgia with a Tea Party patriot, and he said he he liked what I had said in my speech, but he was worried that I was a big government guy. And I said, actually, I'm worried that you're a big government guy. And he said, I'm not a big government guy. I said, okay, let's let's defund the Pentagon. And he said, not the Pentagon. And then we got into a really good discussion about every conservative, liberal, every government that one of their main functions is taxing and spending. The big question is tax who and spend on what? And we want to tax the rich and spend on education, healthcare, mental health, et cetera. Um, he and I went out for Chinese food afterwards and actually loved each other up. But, but you know, I do think that sometimes when we lose these arguments, it's because we're not, we're not good enough at making our arguments. And I come back then to your book because I'm spreading the gospel, so to speak, um, everywhere I go. I, and and I like very much the end of the book, you give some advice about what people should do. But one of the things I don't think you argue, but maybe you do, and that I'm arguing with with folks in the movement all the time is we need to study more. We need to do more serious study. Our mutual friend Alice Kim said to me that the one thing that she missed when she left the ISO was that it was the only time since college that she'd done serious study. And serious study matters. Um and so the folks I work with in the prison movement and in the education movement, we try to create conditions where we can actually do some serious study. And so I hope I hope people take that up as another kind of challenge in the days ahead. And then they should study this um, this book. So okay, first of all, can I ask you a question? How 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 did that debate get organized at Georgia State? I'm curious. Well, I had given a speech. Um, I it was. I had been asked to give a speech in the College of Education, and I, as I was introduced, um, and it was at a time when it was fraught to invite me to speak anyway, mm -hmm. but um, as I was being introduced, 10 guys walked in wearing Hells Angels outfits, and they were wearing Tea Party Patriot patches. So I, they were came and sat in the front row, and they were meant to intimidate, but I gave my talk about 40 minutes, 50 minutes. The first question came from the leader of the Hells Angel. And he said, you know, I agree with you more than I would have possibly believed when I got here, but I still think you're a big government guy. That's how it began. And I went out with the Hells Angels for Chinese food afterwards. It was great. But I pointed out to him that they had ridden up from 
I don't know, 50 miles away in their in their Harley Davidsons. And I said, I pointed out to him that he was riding on a socialist road the right. whole way up. And then he went through socialist underpasses and he was drinking socialist water. So I, I you know, I had that whole conversation, but he was remarkably open to it. And it it was just one more reminder, which I think all the time is that when I can't win a conversation like that, and I don't mean winning in a competitive way, if mm-hmm. I can't make my point, shame on me. I have to rethink how I'm, and and actually that brings me back, Danny, to I once gave a talk in North Dakota and at a university and a woman in the back after I was done talking said, why do you think you're better than me? Mm. And I couldn't think of anything I had said that would have indicated that, but that's when I got to this thing in my mind about humor and art and are so much more pleasant and more generous than didactic. So I can give a speech and quote statistics. And apparently to her, I sound like a self-righteous asshole, you know, and I probably was, and I feel bad about it, you know, to this day. Well, yeah. Sorry, no, I, I'm, I'm, didn't, I'm sure you didn't, but I'm also sure you did to her and, you know what I mean? But, but, and I think some, you know, humor doesn't, doesn't necessarily, doesn't have to cut through that. Um, I mean, I find that so fascinating. It reminds me that, you know, a very personal reason why I wrote this book now was I've been isolated as hell since COVID. Um, but, you know, frankly, also since you mentioned the ISO, the International Socialist Organization, I, you know, I was a group I was in, it fell apart. I haven't really refound a political home. I, I, I need to be in conversations. I need to be in conversations with people who are young, want to be socialists. I also want to be in conversations with people who are like, wait, that's big government. And, and something that was really formative in my experience was the ISO was one of those socialist groups that used to sell newspapers. I, I think we uh, we didn't generally go sell newspapers outside the events of other left groups and just go to bother them or whatever. But, you know, something, especially pre-internet, made a lot more sense. It was, you know, and it was, it was, so I had years of experience, you know, being out there tabling, talking to people, talking to people who were interested in this stuff, talking to some people who weren't interested. Some of the conversations with people who were right-wing and I don't, I don't recommend just having pointless conversations with the right wingers. But you know, the person you spoke to at Georgia State, they may not have thought they were coming there to be open, but clearly they were, right? Because they were actually listening to what you were saying. Tons of people are. Tons of people are like just dying to actually have a conversation about politics in the world, even if, even if they disagree with you. You know what I mean? And some of those conversations were so illuminating as to what leads people to have different political ideas, whether they're ideas that I agree with, because plenty of people who have ideas that I agree with came with them from very different experiences than I do, or even reasoning, and also people that I disagree with. And I think that the big government thing is one of, you know, if as socialists, if we can't really figure out how we're empathizing with people who are like, that sounds like big government. If we're just making fun of that as like, oh, but you, you're, you're all, you have Medicare or whatever. And, and, you know, as if like those people don't necessarily realize it, you know what I mean? Which is like never the case. But if we don't think that people don't have good reasons to mistrust the government and no matter what claims the government has about, no, 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 this is education. No, this is healthcare. That and and I'm not saying I agree with those conclusions. Of course I don't. But that's where I think the other side of the socialist project, and this isn't just about convincing people, this is about what we're building, is democratizing government. Because when people think of government as big government, by the way, big government is big government. And you work in 
education, you know that even, you know, the education bureaucracies in Chicago, in New York City, the capability that public sector democracies have to ruin the best ideas. I mean, that stuff's real. We know that, you know, and it's about not actually trusting. It's about, you know, we need democratizing every department of education in every city. You know, I mean, it drives me crazy that one of the things that gave charter schools their I mean, the initial charter schools were were democracy, uh, or many of them experiments that then hedge funds found a way to completely take over um, because our public sector did not allow, did not trust educators to uh, to, to to pursue experiments in in educating kids. So the you know the the fight it's not just about winning, and this is where I think when we think of socialism, mainly in terms of redistributing wealth. And we're not addressing the question of who's doing the redistributing, who is the government, how are we making, you know, the participatory democracy aspect of socialism is probably as important as the, uh, the universal programs like Medicare for all and free college education. Um, because, you know, I, I, I think that that's, that's, you know, they they have to go hand in hand. So back to the haters, the haters say that socialism is the enemy of democracy and that capitalism is the purest form of democracy. How do you answer that? Well, I think that capitalism is the purest form of democracy for Elon Musk. I mean, I mean, if, I think, I think that, I think that pro-capitalist people define democracy as I get to do whatever I want. They don't define it as government by the people. The word democracy is an ancient Greek word that means government by the demos, which was the people. That's a collective term. The last thing in the world, if you make your fortune by jacking up the price of insulin, you do not want the price of insulin to be subject to democratic vote. You know, So capitalism absolutely depends on a lack of democracy for most questions. But I, I think the word democracy can get perverted to just like, uh, well, these people are forcing me to do something I don't want. Well, hey, maybe it was a majority. You know what I mean? That That's called, that's called democracy. So I do think that there's an association in our country of democracy with something that has nothing to do with democracy. It, it's the freedom of business owners to run their business however they see fit. And and that is a, there's a word that, you know, you can call that economic libertarianism, or something, but it's not democracy. Um, now, there is also, of course, a track record of many countries that were striving towards socialism or calling themselves socialists that did not establish internal democracy. This, you know, I, I think that, and I think particularly if you look at countries in the former colonized parts of the world for whom socialism was part of trying to break from the grip of U.S. imperialism and, and um, the constant, you know, felt themselves constantly under the threat of uh, that kind of counter-revolution. And, and, and ma- many of them never really established a democracy that I think is socialist we should value. But certainly that, again, was rooted primarily in their struggle to make it in a global capitalist uh, society. You know, you raise this question of freedom and the freedom of the capitalist to operate without constraint or restriction. And I'm often remind my students that freedom and and this 
this podcast is called The Seminar on Freedom, but freedom is a tricky question because the Civil War, as everyone knows, was fought for freedom, but both sides claimed the mantle of freedom, the freedom of the enslaved workers to abolish that institution. And the, on the one hand, on the one side, and then on the other side, the freedom to own human beings. And the the cry at the time from the Confederacy was, you're taking away our freedom. How dare you? And to even the, it, it's echoed today in states' rights and, and a lot of crazy uses of the word. But I think that's important. And I think it's, you know, I, I'd be interested in you reflecting a little bit on that term freedom and what freedom are we talking about when we call ourselves freedom fighters or or folks who are want to be on the side of of the participatory democracy, mutuality, and freedom? Well, I'll give a brief thought, but I actually want to turn it around to you because as going into this conversation, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, and I've heard a couple episodes, but I, I don't know if maybe early on you talked more about the name. I did want to ask you more about your I have a feeling you've thought about the word more than I have. It's something I find myself thinking about more lately. But I I completely agree that freedom is a beautiful word and a complicated one politically. You know, because I think it's a word that doesn't make clear when you use it. If you're talking about individual freedom, if you're talking about community, if you're talking about collective, and there's a place for all of them. But they they just frankly exist in contradiction to each other or intention, not not in complete contradiction, because absolute individual freedom can only exist for one person, the a monarch, you know, and and that is what our billionaires strive for is their absolute freedom to do whatever they want. Which in the more of that freedom they have, the less freedom the rest of us have. And then to think about freedom as something then that's more, um, as a community that that that's a kind of freedom that needs. That needs rules. That need that that we have to that we have to decide. And then wait. Well, so what is what what is the freedom that what is a society that has the most freedom for us as individuals, but that also respects one another? And that doesn't even quite get into the question of human freedom versus the the rest of the living things that we live under. You know, the one the neither side of the civil. Uh, you know, uh, and 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 that's which is again where I think. You know, critiques of of um, colonialism, you know, indig indigenous politics have a lot to offer. Not indigenous politics are evolving as well and trying to figure out uh, <laughs> what what's the next step forward. Um, but yeah, I want to turn it back to you because I, I'm I'm curious. Well, I think, why, the, you know, why the podcast is a seminar of freedom. Well, I mean, the, the, I think that. The tension you described, and, I, and I'm not afraid of contradiction. I think we live in contradiction. And I think too often as Americans, we want to resolve every contradiction when actually we do better when we acknowledge contradiction and live with it. And that's true when, when I'm a teacher in a classroom, but it's true in life in general. I think that we live by and through contradiction. So I'm not afraid of it. But I think the, the tension between the personal and the social is one of the things we try to get to. The reason it's called a seminar on freedom is because it takes off from the freedom schools in the South and the idea that education and art are for everyone everywhere. And that my vision of a socialist world is that we are is that art and 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 education are what we're doing most of the time. And as um, 
Terry Eagleton says about Marxism, he says it's Marx was more interested in leisure than in work, you know, and I, I think that's a good, a very good point. But but I think that what I try to do, I've, I've got a book that I've just, I'm talking to Julie about soon, but uh, it's called um, When Freedom is the Question, Abolition is the Answer. And part of when I think about freedom, I think of the freedom movement that birthed my political consciousness. And I think about the women's liberation and gay liberation, all these things that came out of it, which you referenced earlier, you know, when there's a movement on the ground that's raising the question of freedom, whether it's anti-imperialism in the, you know, in the 60s all over the world, you know, suddenly that unleashes a lot of ideas of freedom, right? So the fight against unfreedom, but the interesting thing about, for example, black liberation or black power is that it did fight for the individual right to sit where you want and to drink from a water fountain. But at the same time, it was freedom for a people. It was recognizing a barrier and moving against that barrier. So part of why I call it a seminar on freedom is because I want us to name the barriers. And one of the paradoxes of freedom for me is that you're never freer, you never feel freer, then when you name a barrier and move against it arm in arm with some comrades. I mean, it's a it's a paradox because one of the things I point to in in this manuscript is the the Panthers who were under assault in Los Angeles in the Panther office, many of them were killed. There was a lethal assault on a Panther, Black Panther office in the late 60s. And one of the guys is interviewed in the film Black Panther Party, Vanguard of the Revolution. He survived the shootout. And he describes to Stanley Nelson, the filmmaker, we couldn't get out and they couldn't get in. And bam, bam, bam from us and bam, bam, bam from them. And he says, you know, the weird thing is, for those three hours, I felt like a free Negro. And you're kind of taken back by that. You weren't free. You were under assault. And then you read some of the accounts of the resistance fighters in France against Nazism. Or you read some of the accounts of the South African fighters. And almost to a person, they say, I felt free. And what they're describing is Nazis marching overhead, armed groups surrounding the house. I felt free. Why? The paradox is because I had named unfreedom and I was willing to move against it. Sitting on your couch eating Fritos is not the best definition of freedom. It's I'm not against it. I'm not against you sitting on the couch and smoking a joint. I think that's great, but it's not freedom. And and that's that's how I think about it. And then the other thing, Danny, that I think about is how much I admire again and again when people come together and name themselves in opposition to something. So who, I mean, you're probably old enough to remember when there was no disability rights movement, but for people to come together and say, I see where you are. I see where I am. We share something. What do we share? Oppression. Not, you know, and you make a great distinction in the book between oppression and exploitation. We share this oppression. We're going to unite and move against that oppression. That makes us free. And if you haven't seen the movie Crip Camp, that's my favorite example um, in the last couple of years of a community naming itself in opposition to oppression moving against it and creating, opening a space for freedom. That's, I guess, what I mean. So I have so many thoughts about that. One, I've been, I've been meaning to watch Crip Camp. Haven't. Um, I kept trying to get my, I'm going to blame, blame my younger kid. Cause I kept trying to get her to watch with me and she refuses. So 
Her name is Nadine. It blame her, but I'm going to go watch <laughs> it myself. Um, so I had a, it's so interesting. You know, you just talking about exploitation and oppression. I, I have a workplace story of similar about freedom. I actually mentioned it in the book, but it was a really powerful moment. I, um, I've always, uh, uh, when I do journalism, I'm, I'm often covering one of the things I've covered a lot is the, uh, <laughs> there's always a battle at UPS between the employees and management. I worked at UPS for five years, something I, 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 I will never stop hating UPS um, as a company and, and management. There was a big walkout uh, in the the hub not far from me in Queens. It happened a bunch of years ago. I heard about it. I went down. I, you know, I, I wasn't there for the actual walkout. The walkout itself lasted for an hour, for 90 minutes. It was, you know, UPS then fired all 250 people who, who took part in it. Everyone knew that they weren't going to be able to get away with it. It's a Teamsters local, but it was definitely a, a you know, they were going to try to exact as much punishment as they can get. Long campaign to to reduce the, those, those uh, uh, the suspensions and all that, that, that ultimately succeeds. But I, I end up becoming friends with the person who was at the heart of that uh, walkout. And he talked to me about, and he says, talked to other people about how, you know, while we were out there in the parking lot rallying, we felt free. And, you know, that is not a feeling you have working at UPS. It's not a feeling you have really in almost any job. And it was a fleeting feeling, but it was something that I know for a bunch of people, you know, they've always carried it with them. And again, that doesn't mean that they all draw the same. Some of them can have that feeling and later on draw the conclusions that wasn't worth it because we ended up getting, you know, but but it was such a powerful moving um idea and, and but that also raises a question for me about that kind of freedom being a, a glimpse you have but is it is it a life you can lead or is it always a you know and and the reason i bring bring that up is because one of the things in you know so much of settler colonial history is based on this idea a false notion of freedom that you can come to this place and take what you want from the people who have it and then I think what what then you know what, what flows along with that is that capitalism can destroy the planet and 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 live without consequence, have the freedom to always then move on to the next place to pillage, you know. And there's that great Greg Grandin book from a couple of years ago, The End of the Myth, that, that's all about how you know how deep that that mindset is in U.S. history, and you know, and, and that's sort of like the false freedom that I feel like our country is so built on this idea that you're free from the material world from 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 the other people and living things and and, and even elements of the, of the world that you're living in and and so and that that's so inbuilt to the notion i think that what 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 the common sense notion of freedom is like literally just the the, the right to do whatever the fuck you want you know um anyway so that's and that's a notion that i think partly what makes us history so perilous is that this country for the the minority of people at the top of it and at times for white people white men who were better off in it it almost seemed to live that promise for, for uh a decent amount of time you know and that which is why it's so it, it really sticks in so i don't have even a coherent this is me I, i'm interviewing you now you know like um to, to oh, what okay. degree you feel like freedom is is a is a a sustainable thing or more like something that's always going to be an aspiration that there's certain moments that you can feel it? I mean, I think it's always going to be contested, but I also think that wanting to 
that that seeing other human beings as three-dimensional creatures and naming the ways in which we're pushed down and demanding to not be pushed down. I think the the story you told about uh, the UPS walkout is perfectly in 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 line with my my whole life experience when we were out with the Chicago Teachers Union, the sense of freedom in those rallies was staggering. And, and you know, there's a danger in it, the, the, what we used to call in the movement, the freedom high, which can make you be do stupid things. But the freedom high is also an energizing thing. So the taste of freedom that, that I had the first time I was arrested, I mean, what could be less free? I was in a police wagon. My head was bloody. We were going to Cook County Jail. I mean, what could be less free than that? Man, we were singing at the top of our lungs. We felt like we had made a difference. We felt that the whole world was watching and we weren't wrong. So, you know, it can take you in a lot of different directions, but I don't have it nailed down. So I'm happy to keep that question open up. The other aspect of that Freedom High, I, you know, I'm sure you know uh, Kirsten Roberts in Chicago in the in the CTU. I did an interview with her after the second CTU strike because there was a, um, you know, in the aftermath of that strike, and this happens a lot after strikes, is that there was some people were disgruntled about the terms of the contract, and I mean, as people, as is their right to be, and there, I'm, I'm not. There is often very good reasons to be, but there's often, I think, sometimes you have to go back to work. And even when you win a good contract, the freedom's over, you know, and, and that's also, I mean, and, and I think there's equivalence, you know, you walk out of jail back to, back to the movement. This isn't a problem, but I, I think it's something we, we need to talk more about in our movements that you actually, um, we, you know, what is it? You, you get glimpses of freedom and then you have to go back to living in a very unfree world. And how do you tap into those experiences you've had and use them as a reservoir of strength and share it, but also know that it's going to be, you when you taste freedom, it's hard to go back and, and that it's okay to for that to be hard, you know, in terms of living with contradiction. And it's very human. And in many ways, the stories you tell in your book capture that humanity, that sense that, you know, we can't be on a freedom high every minute of every day, but we can be we can create the conditions where we don't have to live with the in the kind of sewer of oppression and and exploitation that we're in now and and that's worth the effort i appreciate your going raising again and again what you've learned from indigenous movements in the last decade because i feel the same way and the other thing that it reminds me of is that while we are facing a five alarm fire of contradictions and crises the contradiction of the environment, which the indigenous groups have not only been leading on, but have always had that wisdom and that knowledge, combined with the with the kind of sense of um, the Ponzi scheme that is finance capitalism. I think these are not cycles in something that's repeating. I think these are existential crises. And I think that makes the urgency of our work and movement building and your book all the more vivid to me that we have to get serious about the fact that this is not just one more turn of the screw. Um, I know that every group of old people says this is the end of the world, and I am an old person, but some group of old people is going to be right, <laughs> and that's a that's a terrifying thought. Um, but I think that I think that the urgency of your book and the urgency of the moment is uh, is really something that we have to pay attention to. 
I could go on for hours and I would love to do this again, Danny. And maybe, you know, like you, I, as a teacher, I hate being on Zoom. As a movement person, I need to be in a room, a sweaty, um, contradictory room where people are shouting at each other, because I think we learn horizontally and I don't think we learn vertically. So I want people to gather together, get in conversation about your book and really rub shoulders and see uh, what is to be done, because I think that's what we need to do. So thank you so much, Danny, for talking to me. It was really a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Okay, folks, let's give thanks that we're alive and dancing the dialectic at this exact moment on the clock of the universe. Let's look unblinkingly at the society as it is, and let's get busy in projects that reimagine, repair, and rebuild this broken world. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger as a generative and provocative podcast, Ergo, to co-conspirators Light Eye Lee and Palace Shaw. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life a socialist practice. With joy in my heart and freedom in my mind, until next time.